and you're listening to the CC Solicitors Podcast with Colleen Cleary. Welcome to CC Solicitors Podcast. What we're going to discuss today is an exit strategy for organisations from lockdown. And while the politicians won't tell us what's going on, I think it's really important that business is going to have to move fast here. And businesses and organisations are going to have to think carefully about planning for a return of the workforce after lockdown. And there's absolutely no doubt that health and safety is going to be one of the most critical issues. And that's health and safety for the employees, customers, retailers, third parties, not only in the workplace, but also in home working as well. And we're going to discuss today how organisations might prepare and adapt for this new world of work. We're also going to reflect on some critical decisions that employers and organisations are going to have to take in the world post-lockdown. So the first step we're going to kind of look at, and, and we've in, in our practice, we've had this number of discussions about how this might be approached by business. And we've, you know, we've considered this in quite a lot of detail. And it seems to us that because there's so many things to um, collate in preparation for an easing of the lockdown, that it might be appropriate to appoint a person to manage uh, the, the whole return to work. And I think, Claire, you've got some reflections on that because we've certainly had a few discussions around that. Maybe you'd like to share those with us. Yeah, sure, Colleen. Thanks. Well, I think it's going to be uh, really important to appoint somebody who's senior in the organisation to have overall responsibility um, and remit for uh, the COVID-19 return to work uh, and possibly the COVID-19 policy in the workplace moving forward. That doesn't mean that that person is responsible for all the nuts and bolts. They'll obviously need to get HR and facilities and perhaps their health and safety experts involved in terms of uh, drafting up policies and procedures, but they they will ultimately have oversight of the whole thing and it, and it will come back to them and they'll, that they'll be able to take some ownership for it. And I would have thought in a corporate organisation, they'll be asked to report to the board um, or the management committee, let's say, in a, in a partnership situation, that kind of thing. And I, I, a couple of the things that they're going to need to look at, I think, initially are going to be carrying out a detailed risk assessment for when staff who perhaps have been temporarily laid off or who have been working from home return to the workplace um, to ensure that there is the kind of health and safety protection in place. Um, and I know, I think, I think Regan's going to speak about the specific measures that might be looked at. Um, and I think they'll also need to think about a plan for a response to any suspected case of the virus when people do return to the workplace uh, to make sure that they, they minimise the risk on that. Um, so I think there will need to be a specific tailored COVID-19 policy for staff, but also a separate um, protocol and procedure for, for customers or other third parties who might come into the premises. So it could be clients, it could be contractors, visitors to the premises. Of course, it will depend on what kind of business we're talking about, whether we're talking about retail or, um, uh, you know, professional services business um, or a hospitality business, that the considerations will be, dif- will be different, I think. Yeah, there's just so many areas to cover. And, and that's why we think it would be prudent to put together the policy covering all of the health and safety, covering all of the data protection issues that might arise. 
Um, and it really does seem that health and safety is such a big issue, not just for the staff, but for you know the clientele, the customers, the patients, whatever business that you're in, that that all has to be protected. It's quite onerous, I think, on an organisation to have to, to to kind of you know, uh, I suppose have that responsibility um, uh, inwardly and outwardly. And Regan, I think we're going to have a, a chat about that because I think, you know, in the context of drafting a COVID, uh, a COVID policy, it would be quite important to identify what those key health and safety measures are um, uh, in the workplace, not only in the workplace, but you know, the workplace now as a result of the whole COVID-19 has now extended um, quite significantly into the home um, and to remote working uh, in, in a way that I think none of us would ever have anticipated. No. But maybe if you could, yeah, if you had some reflections on that. Yeah, I mean, it, I think employers or many employers have resisted the expansion of the workplace into the home for quite a while. So it will be interesting to see after the dust settles and all of this, how how much that will retract. But in any event, in the meantime, um, we do have this this broader workplace and um, as has always been the case, an employer has an obligation to provide employees a safe place of work, and that includes doing their risk assessment and identifying the risks to uh, anybody who's going to be in the workplace, and then putting in place measures to uh, to address those risks. Um, so we have we have certain risks here which are uh, particular to COVID nineteen, and that's the risk of infection, the risk of illness. In order to reduce that in the workplace, um, there are various measures that have been discussed fairly broadly. And, and have been since the, the onset of COVID-19 um, before we were all excluded from our workplaces effectively, uh, such as, you know, in, reconfiguring the workplace to make sure people can be two metres apart. Uh, that, that will continue to be a measure, we believe, uh, that will need to be put in place. Um, another one which has been broadly discussed is staggering rotating office attendance. Um, that's something that we, we really believe is going to be very, uh, very big going forward in that people will only be able to come in, uh, you know, where you have 20 people in an office, maybe only 10 can come in on any one day. So uh, everybody will take turns coming into the office to make sure that there is this space in the in the, in the the office place. Um, another thing which uh, ha- has been discussed fairly broadly is, is off-peak travel, encouraging that. So making sure um, that employees are not all starting at the same time. Uh, that minimizes the risk of them contracting the virus in public transport. Um, and, uh, and, and so employers are going to be, have to be more flexible on hours that way. Um, some of the things that people might not have thought about maybe might be um, eliminating touch points. So uh, any employer that's got the ability to do it, and by which I mean the resources to do it, uh, might need to change the type of doors they have. Uh, so you, you have automatic doors or doors that can be opened in such a way that people aren't using their hands. Um, I suppose in tandem with the, with something that's already in place, which is hand, sign, hand, hand sanitizer everywhere. Um, then something that, that is being discussed but isn't decided yet, and we don't know where the, the government or the Department of Health is going to stand on it, is uh, the use of face masks or gloves in the workplace. Maybe it's going to depend on what type of workplace you have. Uh, retail will probably look at that in a bigger way than some other employers. Um, keeping a contact log is something that might might be uh, encouraged going forward where you, you ensure that the person who's in control of all this ensures that any time that employees have actually made physical contact or come within two meters of each other, that a, con- that a log is taken of that. So in the event that somebody becomes sick, uh, it's very easy to trace who might have be- become infected. Um, then that's in the workplace. 
when people are still working at home and that broader workplace that you're talking about, there are other things that you'll need to put in place um, that some employers will already have done. Um, but if this is going to be a very long term situation, everybody's going to have to start thinking about it. Uh, an ergonomic assessment uh, of the work of the home uh, home office or home space, whatever it is, because not everybody's going to have room for an office necessarily uh, to make sure that people are not going to get injured while working from home in some way, shape or form. Um, another assessment, not necessarily ergonomic, would be uh, staff resilience in terms of mental health. An assessment should be done of that. Um, a policy in place to remind employees to continue to take breaks. Um, revising the, the homework policy to make sure that there's contact, constant contact with staff or certainly regular contact with staff to make sure that a positive culture continues to be fostered. Yeah, I mean, there's a, a whole a whole raft of things and that can be identified, um, just not only work in the workplace, but the remote working too. And, and that all can be reflected in the COVID policy so that it's just, in, it's everything is just documented in one place. So there's a lot of food for, food for thought there. Um, in relation to uh, all those measures that will need to be taken, which I suppose illustrates really why somebody kind of senior needs to lead that um, rather than having kind of a piecemeal uh, bits and pieces of tackling, you know, uh, some kind of bits of the workplace and then somebody else dealing with the, the remote working. It needs to be, I think, yeah, I mean, it needs to be looked at holistically. Would you not agree, Regan? I would, yeah. And I think as well, the the other advantage of having somebody who is the, the COVID-19 person is that you're going to do away with the um, sort of word of mouth uh, element of things. People are very frightened and people are saying things and people are reading things on the internet. Uh, having somebody who they can go to will tell them exactly what the recommendation is and how it's going to be put in place it will be invaluable, I believe, to employers. Yeah, I mean, it, we're going to be living with this virus in the community for a very long time you know, with the prospect of any kind of uh, a vaccine a long, long way off. Um, so we just, it's here now. We've got used to it quite quickly, I think, in all, in, the, in all the steps that we've already suddenly taken. And I think you're right that there's probably, there's a lot of fear factor in, in our own lives and also in our working lives um, where we are required to, sort of, to go back. There will be a point where we do need to go back to more of a normality, not um, a normality. Um, and I suppose at some point, in it, and we don't know whether this is going to be the case yet, Claire, do we really? But there might be some sort of testing process that might arise mm. um, in the workplace um, in circumstances where, yeah, the employer is absolutely obliged to provide a safer place to work. And employees themselves, as Regan has said, have to kind of contribute to that as well. And how do they do that? And, you know, what's the prospect? What are the, the parameters around potentially testing um, for the virus in the workplace. Yeah, well, that I think that that's a very interesting question. And there has been quite a lot of talk, uh, not just in this country, but elsewhere about whether employers are going to do mass testing for the virus when either when people return to work or to require them to have been tested before they return to work and before they, they bring people back into the workplace. Um, I mean, I think the starting point is that um, employers here are going to have to follow um, Department of Health, public health guidance on testing and ideally wait for any specific guidelines on screening employees um, either in the workplace or before returning to the workplace. Um, I think the, the other point, of course, is that as with any medical examination procedure, test required by an employer, uh, employee consent will have to be sought and given. And this um, would have to be recorded in writing 
I think ideally, um, or in, indeed it would, would definitely need to be recorded in writing. Um, and the document uh, in which consent is requested will have to explain how the results are going to be shared, uh, stored and used. And uh, that would be in order to, to comply with both employment and data protection law. Um, I, I do wonder about the practicability of testing widely in a workforce for the virus. Um, and given, given the time it's taking for individuals to be tested at the moment by the health authorities and the time it's taking for them to get the results back, one, one would question how practicable it will be and also how proportionate it is in light of the fact that um, an employee could have a negative test on a Monday and that employee could have contracted the virus on a Friday. So is an employer really going to uh, require individuals to be tested on a regular basis? That that wouldn't seem to be either practicable or or proportionate. And Claire, yeah. and Claire I suppose, I mean, but, but like you're saying, if the test is going to take two weeks, yeah. kind of, you know, eradicates the... the the usefulness of that test um, if, if you can contract the, the virus within the following day. Exactly. So that, that's just it. And I think it's, I think that's, uh, you know, I think it, it goes to whether it's, it's reasonable or proportionate to do it or indeed necessary to do it. I think, I, I think the other thing that people have spoken about and which was in place in some premises um, before the lockdown was, was temperature testing. And it might well be that there would be the option for employees to have their temperatures tested voluntarily on returning to the workplace. And then obviously, if, if an employee has an elevated temperature, they might uh, choose not to, to attend or they might be asked to return home. Again, whether you could really impose that as a mandatory requirement on return to the workplace, I think remains to be seen. I know that um, the Data Protection Commissioner in Ireland has indicated that any measures taken in response to COVID-19, which would involve the use of personal data, including health data, uh, need to be necessary and proportionate, and that any decisions employers make have to be informed by the guidance of our public health authorities. Uh, the starting point, of course, under the GDPR is that processing any health data is, is prohibited. That's the starting point. But there are exceptions. And one of the exceptions is where um, the processing is necessary for reasons of uh, public health and in the public interest. Um, and the Data Protection Commissioner has indicated that it's likely that that exception would apply in relation to COVID-19. Um, so it's not clear yet what specific measures the, our, our own public health authorities and Department of Health are, are going to recommend. So I think employers are going to have to watch that space a little bit because uh, the more they comply with whatever the official guidance is, I think the less likely they are to get into trouble with whatever they decide to, to put in place. Yeah, I would agree with that. Like you said, it's always got to be the starting point. I mean, once the department issues particular guidelines, that's that's always got to, it's a public health issue. That's where the employer should always start first with the public health guidelines. And I, you kind of wonder, like, you know, when people, when people do go back to work after having the virus or people that develop just like a random cough. I mean, uh, you wonder how those people might be treated. You know, do you have any reflections in relation to that such sort of situation, Claire? Yeah, well, I think the thing is, um, uh, as we all know, that the, the definition of disability in Irish law is very broad. So I think somebody who has had COVID-19, who has COVID-19, or who is 
suspected of having it, perhaps just because they have a cough or something like that, um, would potentially be protected by the Employment Equality Act um, and protected against any kind of less favourable treatment based on having had it or, or having it or being thought to have it. And so I think employers are going to have to be careful uh, to ensure that the workplace is free from discrimination for those individuals and free from harassment by other employees. And harassment, of course, covers a wide range of behaviours, which could include shunning a person or excluding them, um, perhaps because they've they've recently had COVID-19 or been known to have it um, or, or they, they're thought to have it. So I think employers are going to have to think about giving guidance to employees uh, on that. Yeah, absolutely, because they ultimately any kind of defence is going to be primarily based on what steps the employer took to prevent or reverse the effects of that kind of type of, har- of that, that type of harassment. So I suppose in that context, then, you know, that, you know hopefully, well, ho- we're hoping really that we don't see like a raft of claims in relation to that, despite like the huge paranoia around the whole condition. Um, and I suppose just moving on then, um, if, if we talk a little bit about other aspects, we've talked, I think, already about um, what measures need to be taken in relation to the workplace. We've talked about having a COVID policy, and what testing might be. But the unfortunate reality is that there are nearly half a million people on some form of unemployment benefit, and not everybody's going to be in the position or and not every organisation is going to be in the position to to st- uh, provide work for all of their employees post-COVID-19, and that really is unfortunate. And some employers are going to have to look quite deeply at their organisations and take some critical decisions uh, around the continued employment of their employees. And we always, and I suppose the perspective that we always take is that a decision to terminate somebody is a legal decision. And the legal, the reason for that is because there are legal consequences flowing from that decision, which is really important that employers do take advice. And the fact that we have a pandemic and COVID-19 does not extinguish whatever statutory legal rights that employees do have and had pre-COVID and have during COVID and post-COVID, those rights are still enshrined in, in Irish in Irish law. And I suppose in that context then, Regan, we might just talk a little bit about mm-hmm. um, workforce reduction and, and restructures and, the, uh, and how an employer might approach that when they're faced with this uh, discussion that, or the, this reality to take some cost cutting in their own business. Yeah, I think it's 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 a worthwhile exercise because inevitably it's going to happen. Um, it's it's a very strange situation right now in that everything has kind of been stalled for a while, and most people have been put on temporary layoff. Um, I, I, in in my time as a solicitor, I've never seen so many people being put on on layoff. Obviously, so it's it's it, the most that have ever been in, in put on this temporary kind of. In this temporary no man's land, I would imagine in the history of the state, um, because it wasn't really an enormous feature of the last recession where redundancies were far more the norm. Now, what's going to happen presumably after the dust settles is that redundancies are going to become more of a feature uh, once employers know what their long term needs, what their long term ability to keep people on the payroll are. Um, But what we have found uh, is that we're getting queries from employers already about whether this emergency situation means that the law does not apply as it normally does to redundancies, uh, in particular collective redundancies. Um, so very specific law does apply to collective redundancies where once you have a certain amount of uh, people, you meet a, a certain threshold um, where it's about 10% of, of the workforce in excess of 20 are being made redundant. You have to consult 
with your employees and you have to notify the minister uh, that you're going to be or you anticipate making this collective redundancy. Um, and you cannot issue notice of termination to those employees until the 30 day period of consultation and notice to the minister has elapsed. Um, most employers try and avoid it by staggering the redundancy. So they make sure in one 30 day period uh, they don't go over a certain amount. Um, but some employers decide to sort of, I suppose, rip off the plaster and notify the minister, go through the consultation with their employees' representatives. In some ways, that, that can be easier. It just depends on, on, on how, I suppose, how the, the employer wants to do it and what their capacity is. Um, that, that rule still applies. Uh, they may have, have made some changes to the law, but they have not made any changes there. I wouldn't imagine that they will. Who knows? But I, I, I certainly don't think it would be a good idea. Um, the other thing is that even if you don't have a collective redundancy situation, you don't meet the threshold, you still have to consult with employees. Uh, otherwise, you may face an unfair dismissal claim or indeed uh, in a, you know, a discriminatory dismissal claim, depending on the circumstances. But what that means in practice, it's not a formal mechanism, but you do have to uh, tell the person they're at risk of redundancy, get their input into that decision, uh, hear what they have to say about alternatives uh, to the to the dismissal or alternatives to the redundancy. Maybe there are alternative roles that are available. Maybe there's something else that can be done to save their job. You have to give them that chance. Uh, and then if after considering everything they've said, you still have to go ahead with it, that's fine. And you, you, you confirm the situation, but you have to have that consultation with them. And it's important to have that paper trail, isn't it, Regan? I mean, you can't just say, yeah. look, it's COVID, you're gone. I mean, you have to have a, a proper... Yeah, oh, no, no. And, and that's going to happen. Uh, it, there will be employers who will make that mistake. Um, and there, there will be a perfect storm of, of litigation afterwards. Uh, and, it, it, you know, we, with unfair dismissal, that's a up to two years gross remuneration um, that, you, that you could get an award in reality, uh, something less than that, because it is limited to actual loss. So it'll depend when it comes up for hearing. But there will be a backlog in the Workplace Relations Commission. So you could have a hearing date a year down the line and somebody wins and they get their full loss. Because if we go enter a recession, it'll be hard for them to get an alternative role uh, somewhere else. So they, they could still be out of work. Um, so that, that could be fairly meaty. Um, and the other thing is, if you're thinking, oh, I can just do what I want because it's COVID, it's an emergency, et cetera, and you breach the collective redundancy legislation, uh, you could get hit with, a, you know, in theory, a quarter of a million uh, fine. <laughs> and so it's very significant. Uh, employers do have to take great care and, and take advice uh, when they're going to be making redundancies. Yeah, you certainly wouldn't want to be hit with a quarter of a million fine, that's for sure. <laughs> um and also, obviously, there's the prospect of the employees putting an individual claim in as well for lack of consultation. In addition to that potential fine, the, each individual employee could seek an award of four of up to four weeks' pay. Isn't that right as well? Correct. That's yeah. right. Yeah. 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 So, again, as we said, look, these are important legal decisions that are being taken, which have legal consequences. And that's why it is really important to take advice to sort of avoid any unnecessarily or costly legal action, because it's really going to defeat the purpose of undertaking a cost-cutting exercise if in a year's time you're going to kind of be accruing legal fees in defending these claims. Although with solicitors, our job really is, is to kind of litigation-proof uh, clients' actions so that they don't find themselves at the end of a legal claim. And, you know, really that's where we do add value in, in this kind of situation. So thank you. I think I would like to thank everybody for listening to our podcast. I hope you found it useful. Do feel free to reach out to myself Claire or Regan, if you'd like to discuss any aspect 
of the discussion that we've had there here now. We've also done an article as well covering some of the points that we discussed today. So I'd like to thank you very much. Thank you. You've been listening to the CC Solicitors podcast. For more information or to get in touch, visit ccsolicitors.ie.